Why don't we begin by reading Luke chapter 2, 21 to verse 40 together. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, and as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now are... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, this is a large unit and a Let me show you why. First of all, I think it is a unit. When you deal with a text, you want to deal with a unit at a time. And it's it's capped. It's kind of like a sandwich. It begins talking about the law and the parents performing the rights in the law. The the sandwich is the outer pieces of bread are Joseph and Mary's faithfulness. Look at that in verse 21. At the end of eight days, he was circumcised. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him. As it is written in the law of the Lord, verse 24, um, sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Then you jump down and how does this account end? And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. So this is a unit. And what what sets the context of this unit is is Joseph and Mary's faithfulness as parents, as Israelites under the law of Moses to perform all that the law of Moses required. That's what sets this up. And in the middle of that, the the meat outside in in the middle with those two pieces of bread on the outside is the two prophetic um, responses. You've got Simeon and his, his prophecy. He blesses God and he blesses the parents. And then Anna. 
But all of this is being set by the context of what the, what the parents are doing. Why are they coming up to the temple? What, what laws are they fulfilling? And so we're going we're gonna to look at this, and we're going to take our time working through this. This is, this is part of Luke's um, narrative of the birth of Christ. You know, different Gospels contain different events, and we tend, for whatever reason, to... to gravitate towards certain stories. So the story of the shepherds at the beginning of Luke chapter 2, that's really popular. We sing songs about that. And the wise men, which Luke doesn't record, they, they, get, a lot of, they get a lot of screen time as well. But this account of Jesus being presented at the temple, Jesus' circumcision and presentation at the temple, the redemption of the Messiah, is, is, is central in Luke's account. And yet probably the, the Christmas story we're least familiar with, I'd guess. Um, what's, what's going on here? Seems a little odd. They go up to do some Levitical law stuff, and, you know, there's this prophet, and he prophesies, and, you know, that's, that's neat, and all, and they go home. Now, I think there's, this is central to, to, to Luke's narrative. Now, if you remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus to give him certainty about the things that he has heard, that he's been taught. This is the gospel of knowing for sure, and Luke has been emphasizing again and again the historical details of his account and the credulity of of the people speaking, and specifically the credulity of John the Baptist and Jesus. We, we see not just their birth, but their birth announcements. These, these, these are men who stand in the prophetic tradition. They have a pedigree that's rich from the Old Testament, fulfilling prophecies. And here, Luke gives us more detail than he did with John the Baptist. This, this is, again, emphasizing the supremacy of Christ. In both births, there's a birth announcement by the angel Gabriel to a parent. That, that happens first to um, Zacharias and then to Mary. And then in, in both accounts, there's the childbirth, which leads to the community speaking about these things. And that happens for um, John the Baptist. And that happens when the shepherds come and tell everybody. But now we got another narrative. And we're going to get another narrative still the end of Luke chapter 2, because Luke is not fundamentally telling the story of John the Baptist, but of Jesus. And John is important in so much as he points to Jesus, as much as he is the final Old Testament prophet who says, at last, here he is. Behold, the Lamb of God. So last week, we, we saw the birth of the Christ child. Now, an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds, he was born in a lowly manger, and yet angels, an army of angels, announced peace. And shepherds, common folk, the lowly, gathered to rejoice, and word was spreading. Now, in this account, we jump ahead eight days, then we jump ahead 40 days. And so we're going to look, first and foremost, as we study the redemption of the Messiah, at Joseph and Mary's faithfulness. Joseph and Mary's faithfulness. Now, three things are taking place here over two dates. Three things are taking place here. At the end of eight days, verse 21, he was circumcised. Okay, that's the first thing that takes place, the circumcision and the naming. The name given to him, Jesus, by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, that's the second thing we'll look at, is Mary's purification, which is 40 days after the birth. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's the third thing that they're going to be doing. So three rights under the law of Moses are being performed here. And yet they're deeply significant. And they set, I think, the context for understanding why, why is, is, is Simeon prophesying? Why is Anna rejoicing? What, what is taking place here? This is a very significant event in the life of the Christ. 
So let's start with the circumcision and naming eight days later. So the baby's been born. They, he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about nine miles or so south of Jerusalem. And the parents are faithful. The parents are faithful. Now circumcision, you don't need to turn there, but circumcision was the sign of the covenant given to Abraham. Remember, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he promises Abraham three things. He promises him land, he promises him a blessing, and he promises him a descendant or a seed. And God makes this covenant with Abraham, and he makes it unilaterally, meaning Abraham isn't promising anything. Abraham has a vision of the covenant being cut, of, of God walking between animals, birds that have been cut in pieces, and it's only God who walks between the animals. It's God making the oath. It's God going on record. It is unilateral. And what God promises are those three things. The sign of that covenant, because covenants get signs, just like God promised not to flood the earth again and, and there's a rainbow, just as when, when we're married and we enter that covenant, and there's a sign for that. The sign for that covenant was circumcision. And the significance of that sign is, I think, twofold. One, that the location of the sign connects directly with the promise of a descendant, of a seed. And secondly, through cutting and the shedding of blood, there's a reminder of the sinfulness. You need this covenant because you are sinful. And so for every Jewish parent who had a boy... Eight days after they're born, the child will bleed and cry because the child's a sinner. The child needs promises from God. The child is awaiting a descendant of Abraham. And so for every parent of every son in Israel, there's a stark reminder at the eight-day mark, this child is a sinner. This child will experience pain. Blood will be shed in the anticipation of the promises of God. Now, ultimately, Galatians tells us who is this coming seed of Abraham? It's Jesus, right? So what a remarkable and amazing reality that the one for whom the sign was given receives the sign. The one for whom the promise was made receives the sign. Think about that. This God of very God, the second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, enters into time and space, and he isn't born in the palace, and he isn't born to luxury. He's born to young peasants in Israel, born in a stable. And then, eight days after being born, the eternal God who never experienced pain or suffering or cold or hunger or want is cut and bleeds, receiving the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant which promises and foretells him. This is truly amazing. I mean, can you imagine Joseph and Mary thinking this through? Some priest is going to cut God. It's remarkable. At eight days, he was circumcised. When When you look at the Lord Jesus and his love for us, consider all that goes into this. He came into this world. He became a baby. and He experienced pain here. So young, eight days old, experiencing pain, Blood being shed. Not because of his sinfulness, not because of his need of redemption, but because his people who he was redeeming needed it. And so the parents are faithful, and Jesus is faithful, and he is circumcised, he receives that sign of the covenant, and they're given, they give him the name of Jesus, which is the anglicization of the Greek, which is Iesus, which is the Greek version, the Hellenization of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua. That's, that's what probably Jesus' parents would have called him, um, which means the Lord saves. I mean, what a fitting title. 
What is the name of the Savior? The name of the Savior is the Lord saves. And Jesus is given the name that the angel predicted. The parents are obedient there as well. Jesus is obedient submissively. The parents are obedient actively. Prophecy is fulfilled. The eternal Son of God bleeds. Ultimately, because of our guilt. You know, every other child, I said, the sign of circumcision is a sign of their sinfulness, of their corruption. It's not the case here. Rather, Jesus receives the sign for his people. Eight days circumcision and naming. Then we jump 40 days ahead to purification and presentation and redemption. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now we've got two events taking place here. And Joseph and Mary are going a little over and above what they need to do. And the first that's taking place is this. Every Jewish woman who gives birth is ceremonially unclean for a length of time. The time differs on whether she gives birth to a male or a female child. And at the end of her uncleanness, she's supposed to go and do rites and a sacrifice for purification. It does not need to take place at the temple. The second thing that's taking place here, they're sort of combining, they're doing two in one trip, is presenting the firstborn to the Lord and redeeming, buying him back. So we're going to look at these one at a time. If you turn your Bibles, keep your finger here. Turn to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. And again, I mentioned this, I think, last week, but we might be tempted to think that with the tremendous privilege and honor given to Mary and Joseph, we... They might think that allows them some slack. It doesn't. If anything, they become more scrupulous to the law. They, they obey the law. They're faithful. The rules apply to them. And we'll read in uh, chapter 12. We'll just start in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days is at the time of her menstruation, and she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy or come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean. Two weeks is in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification for 66 days. And when the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering." And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her sin. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. And this is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take the two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and shall clean her and she shall be clean. So we see from the Luke passage, and you can stay here for a minute, that, that Mary offers the, the offering of the poor. These are humble people. 
Now, there's an even, even, if you're even dirt poor, there's a, there's a flower offering that you can give. Um, so Mary and Joseph are not on, on like the streets level, but these are, these are poor, humble people. They couldn't afford a lamb, which also indicates to us that the wise men have not shown up yet. Because if the wise men had shown up, they would have gold, frankincense, and wait, there's myrrh. Myrrh. Okay, sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, Okay, yeah, okay, sorry, I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> and they, they, clearly, they don't have these things. So they, I, I think that being righteous, being faithful, having gold, having those that wealth, they would have given the, the full offering. But what's the offering for? There's two, there's two things the offering's for. It's to make atonement. It's a burnt offering and a sin offering. Now, get this, if you've grown up, if you, if you grew up in Catholicism, if you've been taught that, or heard the teaching of the, the Immaculate Conception, the sinlessness of Mary, Mary here brought the appropriate offering for a sin offering. Right? That's what Luke says. She brought, the, she brought the turtle doves and the pigeons. What are they for? A burnt offering, verse 8 of Leviticus 12. The other, for a sin offering... The priest shall make atonement for her. Mary brought an offering so that the priest could make atonement with it for her sin. It's right there. You just need to connect Luke 2 with Leviticus 12. And you could, you could sort of peaceably show that to a, to a Catholic friend. Here, here's the mother of Jesus recognizing she needs atonement. She needs sacrifices made for her on her behalf. Now, it's not that giving birth is sinful, but... Repeatedly, again and again and again and again under the Old Covenant, the message you get is you don't just waltz up and talk to God. In our culture, there's a sort of high-five notion of, you know, hey, God, that's not the way God was revealing himself to Israel. I mean, think about it. God chose, out of all the nations of the earth, one nation, Israel, to whom to relate to. And if you wanted to relate to God, you had to go be part of that nation, right? So already there's a sort of partitioning off, one nation. And of that nation, one tribe got to serve and work in the temple. So now we're breaking it down even further. One nation down to one tribe. And of that tribe, the tribe of Levi and the Levites, one man, the high priest, once a year for a few minutes, dared enter the very presence of God. The law is again and again and again and again saying, hold, hold off, stand back, approach carefully. God is holy. God is holy, which is why it's so significant when Jesus gives the final and perfect sacrifice, the, the, the veil is torn, access is now available. And so one of the things the law does again and again is has this notion of ceremonial cleanness. To be ceremonially clean means you are able to approach Yahweh in the temple and tabernacle worship. To be ceremonially unclean means you cannot and so it's not, this isn't a uh, censure on, on the women giving birth as if that's somehow sinful. Rather, due to the association of blood, she, she's not able to approach God. She's not able to go to the temple, the court of the women in the temple. I mean, think about that. That's striking. Immediately after giving birth, one of the greatest, most rejoicing events in a woman's life, she's confronted again with her own sinfulness. She's confronted again in the law with the fact that she cannot waltz up and talk to God. She's sinful. She is separated from God. She needs cleansing to approach God. Now, there's some speculation as to why, um, why it's 40 days for a male child and 80 days for a female child. The law simply doesn't tell us. I don't think for a second it's indicating greater worth or greater guilt. It's possible, I heard it suggested, that 
because the male children had the additional sign of circumcision, which again reiterated sinfulness, the need of cleansing, that because the, the female children did not have that sign, the extra 40 days are given to sort of balance out the emphasis. It's possible, I don't know. But Mary comes with her family for cleansing. Now, the text says they went up. It's possible that Joseph, by, by participating in the birth, has become unclean as well. I'm not sure. But Mary's commit being faithful. Mary recognizes she's unclean. She is not able to approach God. She needs cleansing. She needs to offer a sacrifice for her sins. And she comes to do that obediently. Notice again the faithfulness. They're poor. They're humbled. And they come up to Jerusalem, to the temple, offering up the offering of the poor. Because they're faithful. And at that event is when they do the third thing, which is to present Jesus. So they've circumcised and named Jesus. Mary's coming for her own purification after 40 days. But now turn over to Exodus 13. This is the other passage that Luke quotes. Luke quoted the Leviticus passage that we just looked at. Luke also quotes Exodus chapter 13. And this is the really, I think, interesting part here. Now Exodus 13 follows quickly on the heels of Exodus 12. And Exodus 12 is the account of the exodus out of Egypt in the institution of the Passover. So if you remember, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, and God redeemed them, and he bought them, and he purchased them, but Pharaoh wouldn't let them go, and so there were plagues that came again and again and again. And the final plague was the death of all the firstborn, whether it be animal or man, except for those who killed the Passover lamb and, and put its blood on the the doorframe, protecting them. And as they leave, verse, look, at, look at actually Exodus 12, verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was at night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the peoples of Israel throughout all generations. And the Lord said to Moses, this is the statute of the Passover. So they leave and immediately the Passover is instituted. And we know how the Passover connects to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7, explicitly spelling it out that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That this, this way of redeeming people, this way of ransoming people and saving them from slavery pictures how God's perfect lamb, the lamb of God, would redeem us from slavery to sin, would free us from the fear of death and judgment. And that for those of us who hide and are sheltered by the blood of Christ, judgment passes over as our Passover lamb is slain for us. We know that, and we're aware of that. There's another institution given at the same time. I'm trying to show the connection between Exodus 12 and emphasis. Notice in verse 41, on that very day, Exodus 12, 51, and on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel. And let's keep reading. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whether it is the first, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day. We're still, we're still in the same time period. We're still dealing with the same um, speech, as it were, of God. He's just instituted the Passover to remember this day. Now he's saying at the same time, set aside, 
consecrate to me all the firstborn, whether it's first to open the womb among the people of Israel, man or beast. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery by a strong hand. And the Lord brought you from this place. No leavened bread shall you eat. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And then he tells them the institution of the Passover. He's already mentioned the setting apart of the firstborn. He comes back to it a little bit later. Jump down to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn among man of your sons you shall redeem. And when it is time to come and your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but the firstborn of my sons I redeem. This will be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So that's the institution of the setting apart of the firstborn. What's the significance? It's again pointing to their sinfulness, their need of redemption. God passed over you in judgment back when you were released from Egypt, and now he still demands that he owns those firstborn, and you redeem them back. You buy them back. They need redemption. And so for every family, the firstborn male child, they're again reminded of their sinfulness, of their their need of a Savior, their need of redemption. Now, in Numbers, you can turn out in Numbers, we're nearly done our trek through the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 3, this gets clarified even further. What does it mean to redeem them? Well, in Numbers 3, the priesthood has just been instituted. Numbers chapter 3, verse 40. The Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites from me. I am the Lord instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn. Uh, Verse 44, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head and you shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel of 20 geras, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So, you're to redeem your firstborn sons, and the redemption price is given as five shekels, a couple of days' wages. And again, the picture is we constantly, and Israel's constantly facing this in their life, living under the law, the facing of their sin, their need of redemption. I'm not right with God. I need redeeming. I need to be bought back. And so for every firstborn male, this, is, this comes. This comes. And this is what Joseph and Mary are coming up to the temple to do to pay the five-shekel tax to redeem their firstborn son. And this is what gets truly amazing, because they are, in essence, redeeming the Redeemer. Are they not? The Redeemer is being redeemed. 
That, that's the significance of that event. And I think this explains why we get the prophetic outpouring that follows. Because I've just argued a few minutes ago that, that when we see Mary giving a sin offering, it indicates Mary's a sinner, right? Fair enough. Mary's, Mary's saying, I need, I need atonement. Is Jesus a sinner if he needs to be bought back? No. You see, in Luke's gospel, and you can, you can turn back to Luke now, both this event in chapter 2 and another event, the end of chapter 3, are accompanied by some unusual circumstances. Here, he goes up to be presented, to be redeemed, to be bought back, ransomed back, and a man filled with the Spirit begins to prophesy and speak, and Anna begins to rejoice. A little bit later in chapter 3, Jesus goes and is baptized. And John's baptism was a baptism of what? Repentance. Did Jesus need to be baptized for his sin? Did Jesus need to repent? No. In fact, Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew does. A conversation went back and forth between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. You see, Jesus received circumcision not because he needed the covenant to save him, but because the people he came to live and die for did. Jesus not only dies for us on the cross, not only takes our sinfulness upon himself, not only bears God's wrath for us, but he also lives the life we needed to live. It's why Jesus didn't just come down here the Friday before the crucifixion. You ever wonder why, why did Jesus need to be born? Why couldn't, if, if all he was doing was dying as a sacrifice, then why couldn't he just come down a few minutes before the crucifixion? No, he... He's not only taking our sin, but he's providing a righteousness for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Or as theologians like to talk about it, we've got double imputation. Our sin is imputed to him, and his righteous life is imputed to us. And so these things happen. He is ransomed back. Why? Because we need to be ransomed back. The people who he is living for need to be bought back, so he is bought back. But I think the reason why we get this prophetic outpouring here is the same reason why in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized at baptism of repentance, we read this. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "'You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased.'" Which is to say, let everyone here who's just seen Jesus get baptized, the baptism of repentance. God is saying, I am pleased with him. He is not sinful. He, he, he doesn't need to repent. God is testifying to the righteousness of his son. Lest anyone misunderstand. Unless someone comes along later and says, oh, you're a sinless Messiah. Well, I saw you receive a baptism of repentance. What was that? God goes on record here. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Whatever is going on here is not that Jesus is repenting of his sin. I think the same thing is going on back here in chapter 2. What's going on when they come up to present him to buy him back? Is, is Jesus need to be redeemed? Does the Redeemer need redemption? No. No. Lest anyone misunderstand, God, the Spirit, moves a man to come up to the temple and to prophesy 
and to praise God and identify this baby boy being bought back by his parents for five shekels as the Savior of the world. That's the context in which these prophecies occur. So I've taken the time to unpack this. What's going on? The parents are going up. They're fulfilling the law. That's the theme of the whole section. It repeats it again in verse 39. They performed everything according to the law. That's what sandwiches this account. What, What grabs Simeon and Anna is the parents' faithfulness to fulfill the law. What law? To circumcise and then 40 days after the birth, to redeem, to buy back this child. And in that context, God raises up a prophet to speak, and God causes Anna to rejoice. It's truly amazing. The Redeemer gets redeemed. Our Passover lamb, the one who is sacrificed for us, is bought back with a price. Not because he needed purchasing, not because he needed redemption, but because we did. In fact, that whole picture of redemption is a picture of God passing over sin. And here is the one in this mother's arms whom God would not pass over. When Jesus was on the cross, God did not pass over the sin that he received on our account, did he? God didn't spare him. Here's here's the one God would not pass over. Here's the one who would take the full force of God's wrath being bought back. It's amazing. Here's the one that the sign of the covenant points to receiving the very covenant to which he is the fulfillment of. And here's, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do it, he, he, and, and this is the thing to grasp. This ties back to his name, and we will get through the first point here and be done this morning. God is a Savior. God is a Redeemer. And just look at the salvation at work already. The cross is truly the pinnacle of Jesus' work. The cross is truly the high point of his love and his sacrifice. But there are many other beautiful points like this. The eternal Son of God experiencing the pain, bloodshed for you and for me. Not because he needed covenants from God. Not because he needed promises of a Savior. He was the Savior. But because the people he came to live and die for did. Because you and I did. Jesus bled here. Did Jesus need redemption? Did he need buying back? Is he somehow guilty and the Passover lamb, the Passover angel passed over him and so now the parents needed to buy him back? No, of course not. He was the Passover lamb. He is the reason God can pass over our sins. All these things point at him. And here this child is being obedient, submissive. Here are the parents being faithful. Notice the righteousness of Joseph and Mary as they adhere to the, every letter of the law. And here's the plan of God coming into perfect fulfillment. And uh, in two weeks, next week we have the cantata, but in two weeks we will we'll look at the actual prophecy of Simeon and of Anna. But just, just this morning, I just want you to marvel and worship at the love of God, the love of Jesus in coming, all of the suffering, all of the obedience, all of the faithfulness, all for us. I think he was well-named. Yahweh saves Amen? Let's, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just we stand in awe at the marvel of your love for us and your wisdom. These mysteries unfolding. Very God became flesh. Very God bleeding. Being bought back. All for us all to fulfill your word and your law. Truly, he has lived 
a life that we could never live. He is our righteousness. He is our Savior. And so, Lord, we are grateful and we worship and we give thanks. And, Lord, we we just pray that you'd give us hearts like Mary and Joseph, that we'd be faithful to do all that you command of us, that we would fulfill your requirements, not to earn merit, not to earn your favor, but in joy and love and gratitude and obedience. Lord God, you have sent us such a great and full salvation. And it's in that promise and in that Savior and in that gospel that we trust. In Jesus' name, amen.